Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back. So glad to have you along. Good morning, Andy. Good morning and happy Thursday to you, Megan Juan. Welcome back. Andy says, can't help humming this song when I'm pondering the day's video. Yeah, I, I mean, I listen to the song, obviously, four days a week. Uh, I love it. Not just because it's my son. But anyway, uh, good morning, child of Elohim. Glad to have you along with us. Good morning, Karenza. Uh, is that the way that uh, you would pronounce that? Glad you could finally join us live. Matt says, glad you're tackling this subject. So many holes in covenant theology. You, you are very gracious. Thank you. I'm trying to be gracious and also point us to the truth. Hey, good morning, Ken Milligan's Island. That's a newer name. Good to have you with the top. Timmy, welcome back. Hey, Edgar. Good morning, Mike. Or I guess it's for you. It's afternoon, isn't it? Uh, all right. So... We started down this path yesterday, and uh, we want to continue to work through the uh, covenant of grace, covenant of works idea, and I, I want to pick up where we left off. Covenant theology, which is sometimes called Reformed theology, although the language gets a little muddy, there are Reformed Baptists who don't hold to everything that covenant theology holds to. Uh, they would bring forward the uh, Ten Commandments, and we will see why that is uh, today. And then they would say, ecclesiologically, they are different from the other groups. Reformed uh, covenant denominations and churches are typically your Presbyterians, in some respects your Methodists, uh, just about anything with Reformed in its name except for maybe the Reformed Baptists, those are going to be your covenant theologians. And they like to say Reformed theology and covenant theology mean the same thing. Anyway, the reason I'm mentioning all this is their heritage coming out of the Reformation, you remember the five solas of the Reformation, one of them is sola scriptura. Scripture alone, they would say, is our... Uh, final rule for faith and practice, and so on. And yet, I would argue that the foundation of everything in covenant theology is based on assumptions about the covenant of grace that are not derived from the Scripture. Now, of course, they would say they are derived from the Scripture, they would go back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3, especially 3, and see a covenant God made with Adam. And I say, I'm from Missouri. Show me. Show me where there's a covenant. Well, the elements of a covenant are there. Show me. And how did you decide what the elements of a covenant are? And that's where systematic theology comes in. They will go through and put together all the covenants they see in Scripture and formulate a doctrine of the covenant and then go to each of the covenants and, and try to show how the, the uh, elements of a covenant are there. I just frankly say that is not how the Bible is presented. It is not a systematic theology. That's not how we're supposed to read the Bible, not how we're supposed to study the Bible. That's not the way the New Testament authors, the apostles, for instance, that's not how they studied the Bible. That's not how Jesus studied the Bible and taught the Bible. Uh, so we have some fundamental disagreements based on the starting place, the presuppositions that we bring to any text. So I want to uh, walk through the uh, the core presuppositions here. 
of covenant theology, if you get this, and you have to have this solid in your thinking, this is not that hard, but you, you really have to understand this is what drives covenant theology and Reformed theology, okay? It's this idea that we have talked about that the, uh, the, the, the plan, the, the continuity of the scripture is this uh, is like an acorn to oak tree. Uh, everything that God was going to do and reveal is uh, there in potentiality in the acorn at the very beginning and progressively through the uh, through redemptive history and through the scripture, it flowers into the that's the wrong term. It trees <laughs> into the full, uh, full-orbed oak tree by the time Christ comes, and so on. Now, you may think, well, don't you know? Don't new covenant theologians? Don't we all believe this? Maybe except for the dispensationalists. Not in the same way. Okay, let me show you. So, pop quiz: Where is the first time the word covenant appears in the Scripture? Anyone? Just uh, if you get the book, great. But chapter is uh, would be even more impressive. <laughs> good morning, Dale. Hey, Edgar. Rob. Good afternoon. Anybody? What's the first? Uh, Top Timmy says Genesis nine. Rob's got it too. Genesis eight and nine. Exactly. It is the covenant that God made with creation. Through Noah. Yeah, J cubed, very good. Noah, right? Genesis 9. After the flood, God gives this covenant. That, by the way, is a good test case for, well, that's not the way to say it. Those who want to uh, take all the covenants of Scripture and def give a definition of all the elements of a covenant and then try to impose those uh, at Genesis 9 and Noah covenant, it just doesn't, doesn't work. That's not, a covenant is just a simple word for a pact or an agreement. When you start adding other elements to it, you are inferring things that are not inherent in the word or in the text uh, of scripture itself. It's just a pact or an agreement. That's what a covenant is. So God makes an agreement with all the creation not to destroy it again by water. The next one is the covenant God makes with Abraham. That's in Genesis 12, 15, and 17. The next one is what we often call the Mosaic covenant. Uh, it's the covenant God made with Israel, Moses being the uh, mediator between God and Israel and, and the giver of the covenant, so to speak. And then 2 Samuel 7, we have the covenant God made with David, where he promises he will have a seed uh, on the throne forever, his dynasty, and so on. And then, of course, we get to the new covenant, uh, which Jesus is the mediator. Now, we read the Old Testament, and then we read the New Testament, and we see that there is a covenant, we call it the Old Covenant, first covenant, there is a distinct covenant covering this period of time, starting with Moses up to the time of Christ, what we call the old covenant. And we call it the old covenant because it's in contrast to 
the new covenant, which Jeremiah predicted, Jesus inaugurated. The Apostle Paul refers to the new covenant. So that is biblical language. And the writer of Hebrews goes so far as to say, as soon as the new covenant was announced, 600 years before Christ, the old covenant, the first covenant, became obsolete and ready to disappear. Right? You know that. Uh, let me just show you this. If you've never considered this, uh, this wording, if you were with us in, uh, in Hebrews, in our Hebrew study, uh, you, will, you will know where I'm going here. Uh, in Jeremiah 31, right? When, uh, when Jeremiah predicts, when God predicts that he will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, when he did that, that was 700 years-ish, 600 years, uh, somewhere around six centuries or so before Christ. So Jeremiah was, yeah, so about six centuries before Christ, okay? And here we've got uh, the writer of Hebrews quoting Jeremiah 31, 31 and following, saying he's going to make a new covenant. After those days, uh, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. I will write them on their hearts and so on. Right? So you know this. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says. In saying new, speaking of that covenant, he has made the first obsolete. And what is growing obsolete and growing old is near disappearing. We often read this and think, oh, when Jesus showed up, and made the new covenant, the old covenant then became obsolete and was growing old. That is not what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He's saying as soon as God in Jeremiah said he would make a new covenant, that at that point, the old covenant was obsolete and nearing disappearing. The Old Covenant was obsolete and fading for six centuries. And then when Jesus showed up and made the New Covenant, then it ended altogether. So that's what the Bible teaches, and that's how the Bible presents it. There's the Old Covenant that for 600 years was ready to disappear. Jesus showed up and made the New Covenant, and finally the Old Covenant did go away. That's not how covenant theology sees it. Covenant theology says, no, no, no. This entire acorn to oak tree period is the period of the covenant of grace. Instead of two covenants, old covenant, new covenant, they say there are two administrations of this one covenant of grace. The two covenants in covenant theology are the covenant of works God made with Adam and the covenant of grace that God made with Adam. We talked about both of those yesterday. The covenant of works, Adam broke it. And so God was pleased, they say, to make another covenant, a covenant of grace, which extends from Genesis 3, 15, 
all the way into the end. And all of the covenants that we see, the Noahic, Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic, and Christ are not different covenants in essence. But they are simply the unfolding of this one covenant of grace. And the old covenant that God made with Israel through Moses is not a distinct covenant from the covenant Christ made with the church. Rather, they are two different administrations of the one covenant of grace. Kind of like here in the U.S., we have our one nation, our one constitution, our one government, but most recently we had the Trump administration and now we are in the Biden administration. Same nation, same country, same government, same constitution, but different administers of those uh, of that nation. Now, not you know, don't it's, it breaks down and and let's not let's just leave it there for now. <laughs> but it's that idea that God was administering the covenant of grace through Moses in a certain way, and then a few things changed when Christ came. But at essence, at core, they're the same covenant. Uh, just, just let that settle in for a minute. So that in Hebrews, well, let me back up to Jeremiah. In Jeremiah, when God says, I'm going to make a new covenant, he didn't mean a new covenant, a new pact, a new agreement. What he meant was, I'm going to change some of the externals, some of the administrative aspects, but the core is the same. So when the writer of Hebrews quotes it and says the old covenant is ready to disappear, the new covenant, that, that's not talking about the old covenant disappearing, just the old covenant administration of the one covenant of grace. Two administrations of one covenant of grace, even though the term, and I would argue the concept of covenant of grace doesn't appear anywhere in Scripture. It's just not there. All right, so I'm tempted here to uh, to start refuting all this. I'm, I'm but I'm trying just under trying to get you to understand the, the 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 view. So let me let me just stick to the stick to the uh, the presentation of what they believe. So because of this, and you've got to get this in your head if you're going to understand covenant theology, you have to have this clear in your mind. They do not see the Old Covenant, New Covenant truly as different covenants. They see them as different administrations of this one covenant of grace. And all the way through from that acorn all the way to the oak tree is not different covenants. It's one covenant of grace. Is that clear? If it is, then you probably can understand how they derive at their different views of things. All right, I think I mentioned these things already. Two covenants with Adam, covenant of works, covenant of grace, the cow and the cog. Biblical covenants are a progression of the covenant of grace. 
This is why they, they baptize babies. This is why. Reformed theologians, except for Reformed Baptists, and Presbyterians and the other Reformed groups, this is why they baptize babies. The argument goes like this. In the old administration of the covenant of grace, the sign of the covenant was given to babies, to boys, right? So on the eighth day, the Jewish boy was to be circumcised. They would say a sign of the covenant given to the boy. Did they wait until the boy had faith? No. No, they didn't believe that that eight-day-old child had faith in the promises of God. No, this was just the sign of the covenant. And the hope was if that boy grew up to have faith, then he would experience all the blessings of the covenant of grace. Well, in the new covenant, we are told, the promises of God are better. Well, what makes it better? Now, girls also get to receive the sign. And it's gone from cutting the body to washing the body, sprinkling water on the body. Do you see the point? Since it's essentially the same covenant, the covenant of grace, the old administration applied the sign of circumcision just to the boys, the new covenant administration applies the sign to boys and girls, and the sign is now water instead of cutting. But since it is essentially the same covenant, they would argue it is right and proper, indeed required, many of them would say, to apply the sign to an infant. That's their whole basis. In fact, uh, if you've ever listened to the debate between MacArthur and Sproul on baptism, it's very entertaining. Uh, I think Sproul won it hands down. He's dead wrong, but he, he won the debate. He was a better uh, orator than MacArthur. Uh, he makes the point, I'm pretty sure it's in that debate. I know in his teaching on, on infant baptism, he makes this point. Uh, you know, you, you would ask, you ask a covenant theologian, why is there not a single example of infant baptism in the scripture. Not a single time. And Sproul argued, because of what I just presented to you, everyone understood that you were to baptize babies. You were to give the sign to babies. Everybody, he, The Bible doesn't even have to explain that because everybody understands that you give the sign to babies because that's what we saw in the old covenant with circumcision. And uh, he was charged with giving a, a uh, silence, an argument from silence. And he came with his rhetorical flourish and said, yes, but it is a deafening silence. Well, you, you think it's crazy, but if you buy the covenant of grace, then it follows with resistless logic here. That if you gave the sign in the old administration of the covenant of grace, you should give the sign in the same way in the new administration, which would be to babies. 
They would also say that Adam was the first member of the church. Because the church did not start at Pentecost. No, no, no. It started with Adam. The covenant of grace started with Adam. Therefore, he was the very first member of the church. The church is not something that occurs in the New Testament only. It's not something that began in the New Testament. It's not a new covenant thing. The church and Israel, those terms applied to the same people. And that has broader implications, which we will talk about later on in the series. Finally, the law is the same in both administrations. One covenant, all the way through, the covenant of grace, all the way through, and the foundation of the covenant is the law. God reveals his law and tells us what he wants us to do, and that's going to be the same in both administrations because God doesn't change. He has one standard of righteousness, so of course it's going to be the law uh the same law is going to apply in both the old and the new. Well, you say, well, what about eating pork? Clearly, in the old administration, that was forbidden. Why is it okay now in the new administration? What about touching dead bodies? There was great restriction put on that in the Old Testament, but not in the new. Uh, What about burning incense in the temple, for example? Are we supposed to do that now? And we think we got them, right? Those are gotcha questions, Pork especially is flat out changed in the new administration. They say, oh no, we have an answer for that. You see, the law has three divisions. There are three parts. It's called the tripartite view of the law. Uh, This actually didn't originate with covenant theologians. It originated with Thomas Aquinas, as far as we can tell. But the uh, Reformed guys liked Thomas Aquinas, and uh, they were happy to come across this teaching because it gave them a way to bring the Ten Commandments forward. But I get ahead of myself. So they would say the law, what we call, what I call the law of Moses, the old covenant law, the old administration law, the law in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers Deuteronomy, that is that, that law is given in three parts. There's a civil law, there's a moral law, which are the Ten Commandments, and there's the ceremonial law. Okay, the civil law was given to Israel as a nation. The ceremonial law had to do with the priesthood and the temple sacrifices and so on. The moral law are the Ten Commandments. And they would say, when Jesus came, He abrogated the civil law, and there's no more nation of Israel, so you don't need the civil law. He abrogated the ceremonial law, leaving what they call the moral law, the Ten Commandments, and that law is the law that Adam was required to obey, and so are we, and so is everyone in between the acorn and oak tree. It is God's eternal standard of righteousness. Now, hopefully you see all kinds of problems with that. Does the scripture ever divide the old covenant law into those three categories? Are they not all moral laws? Was it? immoral to obey, to to disobey all the laws? I I think so. 
but you see they have to uh they have to do something with the new administration uh abrogating those sacrificial laws and the food laws and that kind of thing and rationally it makes sense remember when god gave his covenant to Israel, and, and again, we'll come back and look at all this in more detail later. When God gave his covenant to Israel in Exodus 20, the heart and soul of that covenant, in fact, you could almost equate it. In Deuteronomy, Moses does equate the covenant with the Ten Commandments. So if there is one covenant of grace, and the core of that covenant is the Ten Commandments, then of course, everyone is under the Ten Commandments because that is the core of this covenant of grace that, that transcends time and other covenants. Right, so that's their starting place. That's, that's what they infer. That because the law was given, the Ten Commandments were given as the core of the old covenant administration, and there's only really one covenant, the covenant of grace, then it has to be binding in every era of that covenant of grace. So then what do we do with the ceremonial laws and, and the civil laws? Well, those were abrogated. So anywhere in the New Testament where it says we are not under law or Christ fulfilled and abolished the law or anything like that, their assumption is that means all the law that is not the Ten Commandments. Are you tracking with me? Because they are starting with the assumption of one covenant of grace and the Ten Commandments, the, uh, the inherent righteousness of God in the, Ten Com in, the, in the covenant of grace. That's what he expects for all men everywhere. The, the, the Ten Commandments are the core of this covenant of grace. It's the core um, expression of God, what God wants from us. That's their, their assumption Therefore, whenever the New Testament talks about the law being abolished or set aside or abrogated or changed, it has to be those other two categories. You're not under law, but under grace. Well, obviously, that's not talking about the Ten Commandments because, of course, one of the Ten Commandments because it's the heart and soul of the covenant of grace. Or they will say, we're not under the law, even the Ten Commandments, for justification, but we are under the Ten Commandments for sanctification. Do you see how systematic theology is the uh, it, it, it is permeates all of this, or maybe I should say all of it derives from a system of theology rather than from exegesis and pulling out what the scripture actually says. And this from those who claim sola scriptura, scripture alone. All of these things, covenant of grace, it's not in the Bible. The Ten Commandments as the eternal, inherent, moral, righteous standard of God, it's not in the scripture. Being under the law for sanctification, but not for justification, not in the scripture. Baptizing babies, not in the scripture. 
two administrations of one covenant of grace. Not in Scripture. But they are assumptions that provide the filter through which they interpret the entire Scripture. And I think they are strongly mistaken. All right, uh, let me... There's a lot of comments here, a lot of chat. Good, good, good. I'm going to just quickly pick out a couple and then I'm going to call it a day. Matt says, some even go as far as teaching a covenant of redemption between the persons of the Godhood made in eternity past. Um, there actually is a uh, there actually is a New Testament passage, Luke 21 or 22, that uh, in, the, in the Greek does mention a God covenanting a kingdom to the son. Um, so it's not quite redemption, but it's, it's closer. At least there's some biblical warrant for a covenant between the father and the son there. Um, child of Elohim, the covenant with all creation. Noah is one-sided. No one else agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Noah and creation didn't say, okay, we accept this. Uh, so it's a pact in the sense of it's an agreement that God made. Yeah. So one-sided. J cubed a covenant Theology friend of mine did a subtweet of this video when I posted it stating that the animal sacrifice for the covenant with Adam was the clothing that God gave Adam. Um, well, again, there's an assumption there that there has to be an animal sacrifice in covenants. Where's the animal sacrifice in God's covenant with Abraham? Yeah, I think... I think the animal dying there is not to make a covenant, but to provide covering for the sin of Adam and Eve, which fits very well with the sacrificial, the picture of the sacrifices, the old covenant, and then Jesus, the lamb slain for us. Um, yeah, I think, Rob, you're, you're right on. Um, Milligan's Island says it seems very subjective and imposed on the scripture. Yeah, I, I see that too. That's, that's exactly how it reads uh, to me. Uh, Ken says the two covenants that are never mentioned in scripture, are they two, uh, two they base their entire system on? The new covenant isn't even mentioned in, in their Westminster Confession of Faith. Yeah, because they, they can't. They, they can't really emphasize the new covenant. It is not all that better from the old covenant because it's the same covenant, the covenant of grace. So they, they can't make a hard and important distinction uh, along the way. Uh, Juan says, isn't the covenant of grace supposedly made before creation? Uh, well, that may be what uh, someone referred to a minute ago. The covenant of redemption was beforehand, but the covenant of grace, they would say, was with Adam after the fall. All right, um, good good cheddar here. I'm going to just call it there. Uh, tomorrow's Friday. We're gonna get back to our free form Friday, and uh, or get back to it. we're gonna do it, and uh, we'll pick up the new covenant theology study on Monday. Have a great Thursday. We will see you tomorrow. Grace and peace to you all. <laughs>